When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. Welcome to the Breaking Anonymity Podcast. My name is MC Search. I'm an addict. And I'm Kyle Eustace. And she is also my co-host. This podcast is about breaking not only anonymity and, and having people that we respect talk about their recovery, but also breaking the stigma about what recovery is and how it works in uh, each of our lives. Uh, we have people come on this show that we love and respect, not only for who they are as artists or celebrities or influencers, but as human beings and people that have kind of overcome their isms, as we like to say, around these ways, and um, become men and women of recovery. Kyle, please introduce our special guest for this week. Absolutely. So today's guest, we have legendary sound man, Frank Gallagher. Yes! Career spans over 50 years, and he's often known as the fifth talking head. Um, seven dog years, by the way, 7.25 <laughs> dog years. So we'll just keep him there. The dog. <laughs> he's worked with Talking Heads, Simple Minds, B-52s, and Buddy Guy, to name a few. And we are very blessed to have him here with us today. So, Frank, I'm going to let you take it away. Thank you very much for the uh, the introduction and for the invitation. I'm Frank X. Gallagher, the well-known altar boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's a pleasure to talk to you in this in this very different format from the from the, the normal Zoom thing. Um, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and uh, I, I, I got uh, I got into this business in 1966. I was walking down the street in London in 1966, and there was a van parked, and it was Scottish plates on it, and it was a turned out to be a, a, a wee weekend rock and roll band and they were walking past the van and I heard them talking so I got talking to them and they said if you come back up to Scotland look us up and they were actually from the same county where I was from they're from Stirling and so I went back up home as, as you do I got sick of London and I, I started hanging out with these boys on weekends and I just went along for for the beer and the laugh and, you know, their little cover band, weekend cover band, they all had day jobs. But I ended up getting to know the gear and they said, do you want to come in every weekend and help us with the equipment? And I said, sure. And so that's, uh, I got in a van in 1966 and I never got out. So I'm, and I'm still in vans, but they're, you know, they're planes and buses now, so a little bit, a little bit more room to stretch out. But I grew up in a family where, where my dad didn't drink. He was Irish. Um, there were five of us. And my dad never drank when I was growing up. He had ulcers, stomach ulcers. But he got them, I think, when I was maybe 16 or 17. He got the ulcers fixed. And within six months, he was a full-blown alcoholic. But over the years, even though he didn't drink, I saw the rage and that would, would come up now and again and, and the, the, the anger. And I had a, I had a brother who, who was 36 and drank himself to death. So it was it was in my family and growing up in a village in Scotland, small village. Um, drinking there was the word, I never heard the word alcoholic. You know, you, 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 people would say he likes a good drink. <laughs> a good drink means all of it. You know, and on a, a Friday night, my dad always brought the the pay packet home every because everybody got paid cash back then. My dad brought the pay packet home every every week. So the five of us, although there wasn't a lot, we never went without. And when I was twelve, I um, I remember distinctly saying to myself, I'm getting out of the village. Um, I, there's a little more to life than this, the village life. And I decided then that that uh, one way to one way to get out was, A, I, I, took, I started uh, speaking French when I was probably 
11, I started getting French and that was my my best subject. Geography was my second best subject, followed by history. I wanted to, to, to use those those things. And so I ended up go, getting into the casing and, and uh, hotel, manage, uh, hotel management course, which I didn't complete, but I, I learned enough to be dangerous, you know? So I would go work in, I go work in hotels, I work in kitchens. So I learned to cook, I learned to be a dishwasher, a waiter, learned the front desk, I slept luggage. Schlepp wasn't a word in Scotland, but I learned it. That that um that got me out of the village because there was that kind of work wasn't in the village. So I'd go and work in in uh, hotels outside the village for the summer season. And I never completed a season. You know, there was always something. And looking back, any time I hit a wall, instead of going around the wall, I would try to go through it or climb over it. You know, instead of just going another way. So that became a pattern. So as soon as I got any resistance in a job, in a relationship, or anything. I was off ski. Next. Thank you. This eventually took me to London in 1966. Um, and I had a, I got a job in a hotel, and I first through an agency, and then I got another. Now, the first job I got in the, from the newspaper, called it up, and I was working the next day, and living in the hotel, which was great, because no responsibility. And at that point, drinking never bothered me. You know, I was never... In Scotland, growing up, I, I never went to the pub, you know, because my dad didn't drink. And usually coming of age, the drinking age was 18. When you were 16, your dad usually took you and bought you your first pint and taught you how to drink like a man. And in sobriety, I, I realized nobody ever taught me how to drink. Not that it would have made a difference. I mean, I think one drinks how one wants to drink. I drank for effect from the first time I did it. First time I got drunk, on my own, drank for effect, was in, when I was maybe 16 and a half, 17, I was in this hotel in a, a little town in Scotland, Summertown, and uh, summer in Scotland is about three weeks. Summertown, and, and we, um, every Friday night, the staff would go get a minibus and we'd go down to a, a little village hall where there was a rock and roll band playing, and we'd have Friday night. Now, they didn't sell booze at the dance, and for some reason, I got a pint of this wine. It was called El Dorado. I think the American equivalent is Nitrian Express. Um, this was a this was wine that when you threw it up, and you did throw it up, it it wasn't a color found in nature. It, this they called it fortified wine. I think it was fortified with fucking rat poison or diesel. I'm not sure. <laughs> But I drank it out of, I was in a dorm and I sat on the edge of my bed in the dorm with it and, and drank this stuff out of a teacup because the only other glasses in the building were for, were, were, had toothbrushes in them and I wasn't going to do that. I would have done that eventually. I, but, and then I chugged some of it out of the bottle. So I get to the dance. The next thing I know, I'm on my back under a urinal. I'd slipped in the toilet, drunk, and fell, and there were guys stepping over me to take a piss. True story, you couldn't make this up. Big egg on my head the next morning, and some of the local girls that I was talking to said to me, Frank, I don't, I don't know, why do you have to drink like that? You're so intelligent. Another thing, intelligence and alcoholism doesn't matter how smart you are, I found out. You know, that's. Uh, I thought I was too clever for this game. So, the next the next couple of years, that was the first time I drank. I drank for effect. I went, oh, this is good, and I was didn't completely black out. But I remember, and the bump on the back of my head, and the piss stained jacket reminded me, and I haven't forgotten that. I don't have the jacket still. I got rid of the jacket, I think. <laughs> so, so. I bounced around and I got to London in, in 66 and no, no, still no, still no uh, big deal with, with booze. It never bothered me. I never, or drugs. And I mean, I didn't smoke a joint till I was 21. And, uh, but I did do some, when I was in London, my, my brother, uh, God rest his soul, had a, a bag full of black beauties, like a fucking pillowcase full of them. And he, he said, I'm going to jail. You might hold on to these for me. So I held on to most of them, but I, 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 took, a, I took a few and, uh, and that introduced me to that end of the end of the business. So then I'm walking down Cannabis Street, which we talked about. I get in a van. I go to Scotland. I get in a van. And then that band, wee band broke up. The singer got, got 
join another band in Edinburgh in, in the big city. So I went with him and then we started opening for people and it was a, a, a little... So I got into, and I never got into the life for the money. You know, I was in it for the life. I wasn't in it for the money. And we'd had, we had a ball. We were boys, you know, we were sleeping in the van. We were stealing milk off of doorsteps, you know, but we never took it all. We always left some in case there was a baby in the house. So, we, and, and people would get their bread and rolls delivered. We'd steal them as well and live like, not all of them. We, we just took enough, you know, like Robin Hood. We took, enough, we took enough and left the rest. So that's how the, the, the and then I got the, I got the, I wouldn't say the bug, but I knew that I, I was just very attracted to that life of music. And I never played anything. I was never a, I was never uh, cursed with talent, you know, or, or, that I thought I had talent. But I knew how to handle people and I knew how to, I knew how to work. And so I grew up and I learned the technology and eventually we had a little four channel mixer and I learned how to use that. Then I managed a wee band and we opened for a national act and the national act let me, I suppose you could say I was an intern. I was really a mooch. I just got in the van and didn't get out. And so I, I learned to, that this could take me nationally and then eventually internationally, which happened in, in 1972. I worked with Susie Quattro in 1972 before she made a record with Mickey Mouse. And I was involved in a lot of historic stuff that looking back, you don't, you don't know it's history, it's your job. You know, first single, uh, the guys that were writing, Mike Chapman and Nicky Chin were writing the hits for, and in our stable was Hot Chocolate and Mud and Chris Spedding, Cozy Pearl, a lot of people, a lot of people in that stable in London in 1972. I, I was with Susie for a couple of years and I got, I wasn't invited back, shall we say, for, I think it was because I lit a joint when we were landing in Australia and they had the no smoking sign was, you were allowed to smoke in planes at that point. And the no smoking sign was on and uh, I lit a joint up and Susie was sitting across this, the, the aisle from me glaring at me. And I, I got home and I knew the ax was gonna fall, you know, consequences. So I bounced around and then in 1975, I was working with a guy called Alvin Stardust who had a few hits in, in, in England. And I got sick of the road, I just got tired of it. And the guy who, who, who I bought my, my smoke from uh, said, listen, we were sitting around one night, and he was a cook, and I was a cook, a bit of a cook. And he said, fancy opening a restaurant. So I said, sure. So we built a restaurant above the Hope and Anchor, a very famous music pub in London, in Islington. And in the cellar was a stage and a little sweaty cellar uh, where everybody played. The street level was a jukebox, a great jukebox, curated jukebox and a very music-centric bar. And upstairs we had a restaurant, which we built. And the first month we're there, my, my partner Peter came and said to me, um, we're, we're, we're drinking more wine than we're selling. And I said, but, but I'm cooking with it. He said, cooking with it, you're fucking bathing in it. So that, <laughs> I was 27 years old and um, the restaurant lasted a couple of years. It was meant to, you know, it was meant to free fall. It was really just an excuse to have a party and, and uh, clean, up, clean up some money that Peter had from this other business, shall we say. God rest his soul. I can say that because he, he's no longer with us. But... I had I had a ball, and that's when I think my drinking started to take a, a, a little bit of a, a daily a daily thing. It, it was drinking, so the restaurant was closing. A couple of guys I knew had a sound company. I, I said, um, "The restaurant's closing. What do you got?" And he said, "Thank God you asked. Go to Zurich on Tuesday." This is on a Friday. Go to Zurich on Tuesday and pick up these two American bands. He said, "Nobody wants to do it." This was me taking the sound system out and running it. And uh, it was the Ramones and Talking Heads. And I'd been off the road for two years, so there I was. I get to Zurich, and I'd kind of heard of the Ramones. They had a record out in England. Talking Heads had nothing. Uh, they had an import single at that point. And, and uh, I didn't even know their names. I knew nothing about them. But, but three songs in to the 
I barely got a sound check because um, Didi Ramon, uh, the plane was late. Didi showed up with a stab wound in his ass. His girlfriend had stabbed him in the ass, fighting with him, and tried to take his passport off him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <His> no. Story. <laughs> so wow. I think, were I think there were tunnels involved. So, so what happened was... Jesus. Talking head, I didn't get a sound check. I got a little line check, barely half a song. They opened the door, sold out show, boom, they come in. Talking heads come out. Three songs in, I'm gr grappling with a mix in it. And three songs in, I, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I went, what is this? Hmm. What's going on here? Because I had not heard a lick of music from, from Talking Heads, ever. Nobody much had. Uh, Sire had brought them over. Talking Heads at that point were on $5 a day. Seymour Stein was a very generous man. I don't know if I can say that. Don't, sorry, Seymour, you may have to take that. <laughs> Extremely um, generous. I've, I've heard great stories from Ice-T about how generous Seymour Stein was. Oh, but, oh yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah. We, 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 we don't let the lawyers hear this. Anyway, the, we, we got to... Uh, after the show, I went backstage and said to Chris and Tina, um, who I'd barely met. I didn't even hardly knew their names. And uh, I said, I have no idea what's going on here, but I want in. And they said, okay, so I end up in New York. And that's where the fun begins. And I discovered cocaine in New York to a degree that I had never experienced before. And being around, at that point, Talking Heads, we were just going from the four piece. They, they were out of CBs by this point. We were playing the Intermediate Theater. We were playing bigger clubs, the Paradise up in Boston. You know, we were playing Toad's Place in New Haven. All those up and down the Eastern Seaboard. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And the degree of celebrity they had in, in uh, New York allowed me to be on the door at the Mud Club at Maxi's at CB's. I never bought a drink. It was like, you know, I was with Chris or Tina and sometimes David. But David was really weird to hang around with because <laughs> he's really weird. But um, so we we got to um, it got to a stage, and then I I uh, so we toured, and then we had the nine piece band. We went all over the place. We went to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Europe. Up, and we were in Europe every year. We were um, around America all the time. And in that life, nobody notices that you're a fuck up until you really are a fuck up. And that's what happened with me was, actually, Joey Ramon used to call me Frank the Lush. And I, no, I took I took offense at that. I said, I'm not a Lush, I'm a drunk. You know, a fucking Lush to me denotes some old, little old gray-haired lady, you know, um, and, and uh, with a blue rinse. And I thought, I'm not a Lush, I'm a fucking, so, Left the Talking Heads, I resigned just in a fit of peak. At the beginning of a tour, I resigned at the beginning of the tour in Japan, and, and uh, I couldn't take it back. Tina said, "Frank, you can't take this back. If you if you go down this road, you, you wouldn't, you know, you've made a decision." I said, "I yeah," because David, there, there was personality things there that I can't. I, I was a miserable drunk, basically, and so. I left them, and then I'm walking down the street one day, and this guy walks out of Irving Plaza and uh, out of the office and says, hey, Frank, what are you doing? There's a, a sound guy and, and a, a lighting guy that I knew. And they had taken the lease at Irving Plaza, but they, they had no one booking it. Or no one would take the call. And they said, do you want to come in and uh, help us? Uh, so I ended up being the talent buyer and production manager for Irving Plaza for a couple of years and ran that. I had four bars. I had a doorman who was the house dealer. And that's when it really started getting bad. And the first time I ever heard anybody say to me, you're an alcoholic, was my then girlfriend, who I'd lived with for about four years. I'd met in Los Angeles and she followed, well, she didn't follow me, but she was in New York and we 
became a couple. And she said to me one night, and she parted with me, you know, those lost weekends. And she said one day, she said, you're an alcoholic. And no one had ever called me that. And I said, hmm, you're right. And you've got to go. And go she did. And take the cat with you. Um, I never liked that cat. So she... Within two weeks, I'd moved in with another girl who drank and partied like me. And that lasted about four or five years. And then finally, she, one day she came home and said, we need something spiritual. And this is weird from nowhere. Because it was constant. I was in New York It was, and I was traveling. I was doing bits and pieces. I was unemployable. You know, I was, I was living on my, on fumes and living on my wits. And uh, what happened was she came home and out of the clear blue sky, she said, we need something spiritual in our lives. And I went, oh my God, here we go. I'm a lapsed Catholic. She's Jewish. Where are we going to go? This is a, this is a conundrum. This is a dilemma. So she, we went in search of spirituality in Manhattan, of all places. And for some reason, we ended up, and we went to these, we went to Bible thumping, Holy Rollers, Southern Baptists, uh, all sorts, weird offshoots of Christianity, you know, that involved fu small furry animals. I don't know, there was stuff going on behind closed doors that I wasn't sure about. And so, I don't know how it happened, but we ended up at an AA meeting on 61st Street or 62nd Street, and we lived on 59th. It was a couple of blocks away. And I went there and I kind of cleaned up and shaved. And the people there, and I smoked a big joint before I went, thinking I'd get a little more insight. And people there were very welcoming. And I had no intention of stopping drinking. It wasn't my idea. But I still don't know how I got to that meeting. But something stuck with me. At that first meeting, I remembered seeing these people who were happy, joyous, and free, gleam in their eye, and not full of fear. Because I've come from a small mining village in Scotland, fear wasn't allowed. You know, coal miners don't do fear. Yeah, that's why they have bars, that's why they have pubs. You know, you have got fear, take it to the pub and talk to somebody about it and buy them a drink. And uh, that, there were no, at that point, I don't think there was a therapist or a psychiatrist within a lot of miles of that village. No, and certainly nobody I know ever went to one. So when this, she, she eventually thought it would be a good idea if I was 3,000 miles away from her. And so I ended up back in Britain to re-up my visa and also to, because she didn't want me around and I would, I would be homeless. I ended up going back to England and camping with my brother. And uh, I started going to meetings. I would go to meetings five days a week. And then on the weekend, I would have a roach and a wee line. But I wouldn't, and I was broke, so I couldn't do too much to myself. And I slowly weaned myself off of alcohol. At this point in time, too, I was still very well dressed because the nice Jewish girl dressed me very well in, in New York. I was Saks Fifth Avenue and Brooks Brothers and. So I looked, I looked okay, but inside it was really bad. And and what happened was, I was, I and then I lived in Spain. I conned myself into a job in Spain for six months, working for a Spanish promoter, being their international liaison, and uh, and I, and I didn't drink, but I I I still I was still snoring because I knew I was an alcoholic, but I didn't think I was a drug addict as well. So that changed. Eventually, when I, when, I, when I started working the steps properly. Um, but once I got a head full of AA, you know, getting high wasn't, you can't pray, I couldn't pray high. You can't, I couldn't pray stoned. And, and I came to the realization, well, I came back to America in 1991, uh, January 1991. Uh, I flew back from, from London up. A guy in AA said to me, what do you want to do? I said, I need to go back to America, but I'm broke. And he gave me a plane ticket. He owned a travel agency and he just gave me a plane ticket. He was a, a rock and roll manager for a very, very big band and uh, a sober guy. And, and 
So he bailed me out. And I came back ostensibly to, to hook up with this, this woman I, I had a thing with. And there's a reason why I left, you know, because you can't go back. And I found that out quickly. But what it did do was propel me. On March the 13th, 1991, I had, I think I had a couple of little brandies and a line. And the next day I went to a meeting and in San Francisco and I broke down and cried and said, I need help. And at the end of the meeting, nobody came near me. True story. Nobody came near me except this one guy. And this one guy said, look at you people. This man needs help and you're walking away from him. And then he walked away. Couldn't make it up. At that point, I didn't know what resentment was. I didn't, I was just too self-consumed to be thinking about anybody else and, and, and in pain, a lot of pain, M mental torture. And, and what changed for me was I got a sponsor and he said, listen, I know you're dabbling and having a wee roach and a, a line now and again. He said, why don't you, if you pray, if you pray, and I suggest you do, why don't you ask to be kept away from a drink and a drug? because that was my little escape clause. I always liked an exit strategy, you know. And whenever I go in a place, I always look for the exit, and I still do, actually. I still, in case anything goes down, I'm out. Where am I going? I suppose, that was habit from hanging out in, in bars and after-hours clubs in Manhattan for years. But so, on a daily basis, I started doing that, and something changed what, what happened was a few months down the road i thought about that when i was writing a fourth step a few months down the road with, with my first real sponsor and I, I on a daily basis i had been asking to be kept away from a drink and a drug i, I look back at that situation on on, on march the uh, march the 13th 1991 where all these people walked away when I asked for help. And I didn't hold it against the A, but I did, something jumped out of me, which has stuck with me since that day. And that was no human power could relieve my alcoholism. No human power could relieve my alcoholism. Even if they were wankers, no human power could relieve my alcoholism. I've taken that with me on a daily basis, and on a, a daily basis, I try and turn my will and my life over. As a result of working the steps, now the fourth step I did on the beach, I, I, I wrote the fourth step and I did my fifth step on the beach in San Francisco in September. I got sober in March, I, I did the fifth step in September. And it was freezing. And me, I said, I don't want to do this in a room. I want to be alone. I don't want to do it in a car. I don't want to be any. So we sat on the beach, me and my sponsor with blankets around us, very inconspicuous. Uh, the only two people there, you know, they, they must have thought, oh, there's two weirdos sitting there. And it's freezing. And uh, I did a fifth step. And that's when my life changed. That's when my life changed, that fifth step. And I consequently did another fifth step with a, with another sponsor. And um, I hated that guy. I hated the second sponsor, but I did a really good fifth step because the first fourth step, I started growing little uh, resentment trees came out of, you know, I'd have a line of resentments and they would, they would be a little family tree going, oh, and that bastard. And then I hated whole countries. You know, fuck Belgium. Oh my God, Belgium, not the fucking Belgians again. Consequently, I actually like going to Belgium. It's not bad. Uh, so that was my experience. Now, what he took, the, the second sponsor fired me for not going to any lens because I broke an appointment with him. And I broke the appointment to take my two-year-old child to the emergency room and he stopped working with me. See, this is why it was a, it was a, it was a grudge fifth step. Anyway, I thought, I'll show this bastard, I'll do the best fifth step ever, the fourth and fifth step, I'll show him. And, and you know, it was, it was the way I drank, I drank at people, you know, I drank it, oh fuck it, I'll drink at you, get you. You're not getting away scot-free, I'll get drunk for you. And uh, 
see, then you'll see what happens. So what happened was, was um, I got past that and um, I kept I kept going to meetings and I, when I was traveling, the only time I was ever offered drugs. Now, I, when I was working before I got sober, I'd go to the club and there would be cocaine there or there'd be a dealer there, there'd be free drinks and all that good stuff. And I wondered, since I got sober, why there was nobody there anymore when I went back to work. And I went back to work, I was terrified to go on the bus. And I got a job six months sober and I went back on the bus with Mr. Big. And they were, they were going from zero to 60 with, I'm the one who wants to be with you. So that was my first job back. Uh, and I, it was a fluke, it was another fluke. I was in a place and the guy, I asked for a job, the guy said, I ain't got nothing. And then three days later, he said, oh, my son guy just quit, you're on. And it was terrible money, but, uh, but I went and did it anyway. And it, it, so we went from zero to number one, it, like that quick. And, and we were doing a New Year's Eve in, in Denver. And we were playing a New Year's Eve in Denver. And I'm in the dressing room and a stagehand comes in and says, you want a bump? And I, I looked around, it's, not, it's just me and him. And I found myself saying, I know we don't do that. And that was the first time anyone's ever offered it to me. And, it's, and it, it was the first time any drugs were there. Because previous to that, I figured out why there was always drugs there. Because I had advanced the show and, and tell the guy, make sure it's there. You know, make sure. You know. I said, forget about catering. Just give us a little something to keep us awake. Uh, and... Uh, but getting back on the bus, uh, sober, somebody said to me, "Well, how could you, how could you go back in that business?" Well, my sponsor wanted me off his couch. That was that was one reason, and I was broke, and I needed to work. And so, getting back to 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 that, and people say, "Well, how can you stay sober in that business?" I said, "I don't drink it. It's free booze. I'm Scottish. It's in the dressing room every night. It's still there every night, and I don't drink it." I'm in a hotel room with a mini bar that someone else is paying for, and I don't drink it. My defense against the first drink is a power greater than myself, which I came to have a dependence upon and a reliance upon by working the steps and cleaning the house and helping other alcoholics and helping other people, you know. You know, Big Country had a, had a great line in one of the songs, Stuart Adams, and I never took the smile away from anybody's face. Great line, good maxim for the day. I try not to take the smile off anybody's face. And with that, oh look, there's another alcoholic texting me now. Um, they're everywhere. So today, I live, I've got a 25-year-old daughter who's never seen me drunk. She had cancer when she was 17. I didn't find it necessary to pick up a drink. I had a doctor call me and say, make no mistake, Frank, this could take her. The one thing I wanted to do right was to be a father. And uh, did I do it right? Who knows? She's in Brooklyn, I'm here, but uh, she's, uh, she's locked down. And life goes on. I've got a great life. I just, after 29 years in San Francisco, I left and moved to Flagstaff, Arizona in the mountains, semi-retired, because I'm out of work. There is no concerts, there are, and I did a lot of corporate stuff too. I did a lot of corporate audio and production and festival pr production management. Uh, and I'm living proof that you can enjoy a rock and roll show sober, and you can do your job sober. And I can be surrounded by madness, and it doesn't bother me. It's none of my business what other people do. Do your job, and you'll be fine. Do what you like, I don't care. We close the back of the truck, it's your time. Do what you like. Just don't throw up on the bus, you know. Don't throw up in your bunk or anywhere else. <laughs> so, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope that suffices. Uh, but that has been my experience, my strength, and I definitely have hope because on a daily basis, I try and turn my will and my life over and and not let it be the Frank show. All Frank, all the time, fucking Frank channel. <laughs> when, I, when I do that, I have very successful days. 
Oh, wow. Frank, um, that is amazing. I think I'm going to take that quote you just said, try not to take the smile off of anyone's face and apply that to my life like every single day. Seriously, that, that's amazing. Um, I like to smile and I definitely like to laugh, as you'll probably figure out. But that was, <laughs> that was wonderful. Um, you know, how did you get comfortable with finally kind of talking about your feelings with another person? Was Did it take a long time? Um, I, I was okay. I was okay one on one. I would mainly pour it out to girls uh, when I was younger. Uh, but as as I got older, I had I had very few confidants. Probably, probably the, the looking back, my my partner in the restaurant when I was twenty five years old, twenty six years old, Peter. Um, we had a. We had a very well, shall I say, open. We had, we were very open with each other when it came to when it came to that. Because at that point, I wasn't. You know, he had a great philosophy. We were we were like two peas in a pod, both Capricorns. I was born on Christmas Eve. He was mm-hmm. born a couple of days later, and uh, well, we had an affinity with the kitchen and stuff, and we opened up to each other. Um, no, I was I was very guarded uh, about about opening up. In the village. I, I never had anyone in the village I could open up to. I mean, not even the priest, you know, especially the fucking priest. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, Frank, you also said something that I really, um, I really loved. You talked about your self-centeredness and your ego, and it's about the Frank show. Do you find that being in the music business was almost a prerequisite to needing a ticket to the Frank show? And how do you kind of dispel that myth for those who might be listening who you know are trying to get away from their own self-centeredness and their own ego i've been doing this podcast as 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 you know and and uh two guys the couple of the the first two guys i talked to jim care from simple minds and charlie from simple minds both made the both made the point that to get into this you have to be a certain type and to be a certain type means you have to have a strong personality, a thick skin, and you know it's not a normal life, not 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 a normal lifestyle. I, I, was I ego driven? The only competition I had was with myself. Basically, I wasn't a competitive person by nature. I didn't have any ambition. I didn't want a career. When I got into this, I got into it. Well, I say for the music, but I got into it for the life. It was more than the music. I got into it for. And I think the focus you have to have, well, when I go step up to do the, a show, um, I, I approach the mixer, it's me against the audience with a band in the middle, you know? So the, the ego goes to the side and my professionalism comes out. And, and my professionalism is these people have paid money for a ticket. They've got to get a good show and that's, that's what I do, you know? I don't know if that addresses what you... No, but I'm thinking more about your ego in terms of the self-centeredness when it came to your addiction, right? So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when... Yeah. All Frank all the time. Yeah. I didn't think and, of anything else, but how how I was going to get by and how I was going to make it happen, where I'd get the money, who's got... Uh, I'd wake up and wake and bake every day in New York, you know? And mm-hmm. yeah. And it's free and everybody's yeah. giving it to you. So yeah. it's not costing you anything. There's no adverse reaction to your lifestyle. You're no. able to pay your rent. You're able to pay your bills. In fact, it's not only free, it's actually frequent. Like they want, like you're only better if you're high. You're only better if you're fucked up. You're only better if you're around other people who are high and fucked up. So yeah. the magnification of your ego and your self-centeredness is almost becomes part of the business, right? Like, and you said it, you went to this meeting begging for help and people walked away, including the guy that said, how dare you guys walk away from this guy? But you still have that ego, right? You still have that self-centeredness of saying, you know, wait a minute, you guys are walking away from the greatest show on earth. You're walking away from the Frank show. Like, yeah. do you know what you guys are fucking missing, you assholes? But, but, but at, at that point, at that point, I was so low that there was very little of the Frank show left. Mm. That's the other, the other truth. I was mm. devoid of, mm. I was numb and lost and 
but I wanted a, I wanted a way out. I wanted a way out. Yeah, I the the when I did that four step two, that took a lot of the the, the ego out of me. But people have told me, uh, people are, just before I got sober, a band I was a young band I was working with, and I was in Paris, and the, and the the I I. I you know, I would fight with these kids. They were just fucking wild, and they would they would just they would, they would terrorize me as a tour manager. I would just slap them. You know? <laughs> I would just it would it got to it got to fisticuffs, and it's and it's not hard for me to talk about my ego because to tell you the truth, back then you had to have some of that, but the self centeredness. I know got in the way of me being frank, and and now I I have no fear of people. I, none whatsoever. Somebody said to me, "Do you ever get nervous doing these shows, uh, being around these bands?" I said, "No, they're the ones that should be nervous." <laughs> I've got, uh, but I've always had a strong personality, and even when I got sober, I'm still the same guy I was drinking. You take the drink away, my sense of humor is still the same. My experiences are still the same. The village life I grew up with has never left me. You know, I'm still a village boy. I still stay in touch with those people. I still, and the difference between my buddy and me when I went to London was he was a city boy. And city boys had a way different, and he was, this was this in the 60s. He lived in London in the 60s. Completely different. I was naive. I was like a, you know, I'm not going to say hillbilly, but from the very, I was smart enough though to get out of Scotland and I learned a lot. There's a, a lot of good values. But the self-centeredness, I don't think, uh, I didn't. Well, one doesn't think one's self-centered when one is. <laughs> exactly. Very good point. <laughs> I uh, I could really relate to to um, you know talking about kind of the quote unquote rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, even as a music journalist, like I will be backstage, and of course, there's drugs, there's alcohol all around me. And at this point, you know, almost eleven years in, it's been it's become so easy to just kind of block out. And people always look at me like, how do you do this? How do you sit through like seventeen blunts to get the story? It's like, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But I'm I'm blessed to have you know that strong of recovery where it doesn't get to me. So. I, I really admire that about you. And, you know, now that you're, you know, we're in COVID, obviously, and tours have come to a halt. Um, how do you, like, once we get back to the music, hopefully soon, um, you know, how do you navigate that today? Is it, is, just, is it just as easy as just kind of blocking it out? <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm staying fit. I'm like, mm-hmm. a, I'm like an athlete um, who, who, when you're benched, you, have to, you still have to stay fit. Mm-hmm. So when the phone rings, I'm ready. So I'm mm-hmm. staying fit and healthy and getting my rest and taking care of myself and listening to music. Got a little podcast thing going on. I've got a mixer <laughs> I play. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm keeping I'm keeping fit. Nice. You know, I'm 73 years old and I'm fitter than most of my crew. Yeah. What would you say Frank to um someone who's listening to this? who might be challenged or might be fearing that, you know, they don't necessarily know if they can stop or they're afraid to jump in, like, you know, jump into the pool, both feet. You know, what do you say to someone who, you know, looks at you and says, oh, it's easy for Frank. He's got, you know, 33 years. He doesn't know what it's like to, you know, be back to day one when, you know, you can't wake in without frank never ever forgot day one and frank never ever forgot what got me to day one and what i have to do to stay away from day one again uh, it's a day at a time and here's the thing i hear a lot of i hear a lot of uh, statistics bandied about about alcoholics anonymous all oh, the percentages this that and the other this thing works 100% for people who want it. Mm. If you want it, it'll work 100%. If you don't want it, it won't work. And in this business, it doesn't matter. I would have been a drunk welder. I can't blame the roadie thing. I, can, I, I was a drunk roadie, but I could have been a drunk welder or a drunk plumber. Doesn't, it wouldn't have made any difference. But in answer to the question, if you want it, if you want to stop drinking more than you want to drink, mm-hmm. you want to do this, It'll work for you. 
What do you say to the man or woman or person who is scared? Yeah, well, I get scared sometimes too, you know. Um, getting back to just one little point about honesty. Sure. This yeah. is getting sober was the most honest I've ever been in my life. Mm. Am I still totally honest? Fuck no, I'm a human being. But but the one thing I am honest about is my desire to stop drinking on a daily basis. Absolutely and completely. That's where, where my honesty Honest with the IRS? Well, when I when they get honest with me, I'll get honest with them. You Great know? point. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I made up. I I spoke at a meeting this morning in San Francisco, and and uh, I asked a question: How many alcoholics does it take to change a light bulb? What do you mean change? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one, Frank. That's what you've got to do to get rid of your fear is change and change. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your podcast, Frank X Gallagher. Tell us about this podcast that you're doing and tell us about what else is going on in the life of Frank X Gallagher. Yeah, what? and where we can find it too. Yeah, yeah. Well, today you can't because I know today. My producer's working on it. My producer's on it. But what what happened was when COVID came down, I um I had been working before COVID came down. Uh, I started working on a book, and uh, I got involved with a uh, a co writer, someone who was experienced, and he lived in London, and I I would send him audio files, and he would transcribe and. He wasn't getting my voice, and so I'd recorded quite a, quite a bit, and and um, just talking into a mic and sending it to him, and and so this other Scottish guy came on my radar in San Francisco, uh, and and he's a creative writing uh, teacher, and uh, to to make ends meet, he ran a, a, a pub in San Francisco. I called the Edinburgh Castle, which was a literary pub. It was a an artist hangout, and he's very good friends with Irvin Welsh, and and uh, so he he's. I said, Dude, I cut a deal with him, and and we we cut a deal, and I said, okay, so I'll start sending you the files. He transcribes, and he got my voice, but then one day he heard me interviewing someone in New York on the phone and recording it for for the book, just uh, and. Uh, he said, listen, um, this should be a podcast. You're very good at this interviewing thing. And I hadn't thought about it. So the first one I did was David Byrne. I sent him February last year before we came, before COVID shut us down. I was in New York doing a show. I took my daughter to see David Byrne's show at uh, the theater. And I hadn't talked to him in 36 years. I had a little, a little nine-step amends to make. He didn't know that because he's on a little on the spectrum. He didn't, he wasn't even aware. So I went, uh, sent him an email and he said, eh, yeah, come backstage, no problem. Um, I didn't get free tickets. That was the only bugbear. I had to buy tickets. Broke my <laughs> fucking heart. Buying a ticket. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you buy a how you done? <laughs> so, so, so uh, I, I went back and, and I said, listen, uh, do you mind? I, and he didn't even ask me how I got his personal email, but you know, it, it doesn't take too much to figure out how I got his personal email, <laughs> not even his business email. And, uh, and I said, I'm doing this book. And so, so, you know, he's very cagey. Wait, what's the book about? I said, just about the life. I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do kiss and tell, you know, I'm going to do fucking tell. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> kiss and tell is like five bother. So he said, Okay, yeah, get in touch. And he called me uh, for the podcast. Mm. Ostensibly, I was interviewing him for the book, but I said, I'm going to do a wee podcast. He said, no problem. And, uh, and he signed the release and everything the next day. It was, so he was the first. And that's how then Jim Kerr was the second, Simple mm. Minds, my, my boys. And I talked to mm -hmm. Jim every week anyway. You know, we have a laugh. And because, <laughs> so that, that's, that was, just something to, to do, you know, and I had a little studio. I was, I bought some more equipment and here we are. Mm. I'm about 19 or 20 episodes in and I've got a few lined up. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not recording anymore at the moment. We're just letting it flow. And then 
but I've got I've got a few people lined up. I should talk to Matthew actually. You should, yeah. Tell him you know me. <laughs> well, he, he knows me very well. That's so funny. What a small world. And you had Kate Pearson as well, too, right? Oh, I've got Kate Pearson and Tina, Buddy Guy. I've got Richard Butler coming up from the Psychedelic Furs. Wow. Amazing. Alan from Creation Records, more popular over there than here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, who else have I got? Oh, God, I've even forgotten some of them. I've got mm-hmm. Vernon Reed coming up from Living Color. Oh, really? I met him once at Lollapalooza. I- <laughs> I booked him. I booked his first show in a white venue in Manhattan. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I booked out Vernon. I put him on with John Cale. I put him on with the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Tell Vernon uh, MC Search sends his love. I, I speak to him all the time as well. So oh, yeah. Friend. That's lovely. awesome. Yeah. Lovely, lovely man. And, and yeah, and, and there's, there's, uh, who else? I can't even remember. Oh, I've got the Go-Go's. I've got Jane and Gina, both recorded, separate interviews. I've got the two girls from the Bangles, the Peterson sisters. I, I met them when I was in fifth grade, and um, I was so thrilled because Michael had a boy's name, like my name. I was Kyle. Yeah. And we were yeah. like, oh, I just love you. And they signed all my stuff. And that they, I really looked up to them when I was young. <laughs> what, what, was that Walk Like an Egyptian tour? Yeah. Yep. I was on that. What? See? I, on that. <laughs> I wonder if I've been to a bunch of shows that you've been the sound guy for. <laughs> I, I have. I have done quite a, quite a few. That's well, amazing. Frank, thank you for your experience, strength, and hope. My my hope mm-hmm. is that this podcast and your story will inspire others to not only continue on their journey, but maybe then help somebody get into a room for the first time and gain some clarity and yeah uh, yeah i love you uh, and i thank you that's uh that's the name of the game is to 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 help somebody else you know get past that fear of walking through the door mm-hmm. you know absolutely. absolutely that's a big step walking in the first, for the first one so yep absolutely. well thank you very much it's been a pleasure and an honor it's so great to meet you yeah yeah stay in touch you know where to find me Check out new episodes of Breaking Anonymity every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and subscribe. The Breaking Anonymity podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett Epic-Mazur, Kyle Eustace, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustace and Michael Barron. Sound design by Brett Epic-Mazur and Nick Davila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Lukes. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka. If you are battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.